Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Chef Story. I'm Eric Mernigan, president of the International Culinary Center and your guest host for this episode. Joining me today in Soho at the ICC is one of the bright lights of the culinary world, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of the Food Lab. Kenji is the managing culinary director of SeriousEats.com, author of the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab, and is a columnist for Cooking Light. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, and Men's Health. He is the author of the recently published award-winning book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Welcome, Kenji. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, I look forward to learning more about you today. <laughs> All right. So why don't you start by telling me where you grew up? Uh, well, I, I grew up in New York. I, I was born in Boston, but my family moved here to New York uh, when I was about three years old. Um, and so... Yeah, I grew I grew up uh, in Morningside Heights, where my mom still lives. Okay, yeah. and would you tell say that your parents were foodies? Uh, no, no, I mean not at all. I mean, my my dad maybe a little bit. Um, you know, my dad likes to go out to eat. Uh, my mom does not like to go out to eat. Actually, thinks it's a waste a waste of money. But um, you know, I, I think my you know my mom was a decent cook, but she was a very sort of functional cook. You know, she she cooked because she had three kids and we had to eat. Um, and, uh, you know, and she, she came from Japan when she was a teenager. So the food she cooked was sort of, a, some, sometimes it was Japanese food and sometimes it was sort of like, um, you know, sort of like 1970s American staples, you know, like Salisbury steak, things like that. Um, um, but I, I, you know, basically as soon as the kids moved out of the house, she doesn't, she stopped cooking. Like she doesn't enjoy cooking. Um, so yeah, I definitely wouldn't call her a foodie. Um, uh, my, my dad does enjoy cooking, but I did, I didn't grow up with it, with cooking at all. You know, I, I didn't start cooking. Actually, my, my first restaurant job was basically the first time I'd ever really cooked. Okay. So there's been a lot of discussion and, and you've certainly participated in this discussion on, on taste memories and how taste memories kind of mm-hmm. define, um, some of the, the, culinary regionality and, and how people feel about um, grandma's cooking and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So talk to me a little bit about some of your your early childhood taste memories and <coughs> food experiences. Um, well, I, I guess the one I remember most and the, fa- my, the favorite thing for all, all of us kids that my mom w- made was um, was dumplings, like Japanese-style gyoza. Um, and... Um, and that was something that we actually participated in. So, sh- so she would sit us like sit us down at a low table in front of the TV, like maybe every two months or so, and we'd have like a stack of wrappers and a bowl of filling. And so, me and my sisters would would fold and pleat all the dumplings, and then we'd freeze them all and then eat them over the next over the next couple months or so. So, those dumplings, um, you know, ob- objectively looking back on it now, like objectively, they're you know they 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 weren't that great. Um, you know, they're not what I would call great dumplings if I went out to a restaurant and ordered dumplings, um, but. Um, but you know, people, you're you're influenced by context, and so you know, for me, those dumplings I think are still sort of sort of the standard, like the gold standard for what um, they they would be one of my death row death row meals. You know, um, okay. eating those dumplings. 
Yeah, I think that there are a lot of foods like that. I saw the article in the Times yesterday. I think you're you're quoted in about pot roast. Oh right, yeah, pot uh, roast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, elevated pot roast, but really is is uh, rooted in grandma's recipe or mm-hmm. mom's mm-hmm. recipe, and what we um, what we identify with as uh, maybe. You know, American foods or simple foods growing up, but now right. we as as chefs are starting to elevate these and and treat them a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, well that that's that's I think sort of one of the one of the things I was trying to do in the food lab and still trying to do in the column on the food lab is, um, you know, people for for a long time I think the, the, there were there were certain foods that were taken seriously and it was um, but. You know, and 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 a lot of people when they think food science or they think technique, they don't think of like a hamburger or a hot dog. But there's just you know, there's just as much science behind a good like you. you I mean, you've you've done this. You know, you've been to a, fr- a friend's house, um, and they have a and then they have you know they they have a cookout and they make you a hamburger and it's, and it's pretty good. And then you go to another friend's house and it's they're starting with the same basic ingredients, but one of them is going to probably going to be a lot better than the other. And that really just comes down to comes down to technique. Um, so you know, there there is just as much technique. Um, and science behind what makes a hamburger good as there is behind any other food. Um, and, I, and I think it took a while for people to, to get to the point where they started taking those simple foods seriously. Um, you know, so, so when I'm writing about something like a burger, the, the goal is never really to sort of alter the, alter the, uh, the outcome. It's, it's, not, it's not to make um, like a new kind of burger, but it's really just to come up with a recipe or a technique that, um, um, that sort of uh, exemplifies what a burger should be and what, you know, so that the, the end product is sort of the burgeriest burger you've had, you know, but it's still instantly recognizable as a hamburger um, or a meatloaf or whatever it is. You know. Okay. So in your book, and I may be misquoting it, but you say um, ground meat, or I think you say sausage is now the, the way meat should be or some, something to that effect. <laughs> uh, well, no, not the way meat should be, but so sausage, I, 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 like I consider it to sort of be perfect meat in that you know mo- most other meats you, you're starting with a whole cut from an, from a from an animal and you have to kind of work around any deficiencies in it right so like a, like a chicken breast uh there's not a lot of fat in it so you have to deal with that while you're cooking it or um or you know like a, a beef chuck is very tough so you have to figure out a way to work around that whereas sausage you're kind of going the other way around you're you're you're, you're making it into something that you want it to be before you even start cooking it so it, it has the right level of tenderness it has the right level of fat it has the right level of salt um and all those things are kind of just built into a sausage from the from the get-go yeah, that's that's interesting i, I loved yesterday um you uh worked with our students a little bit yesterday and um had two balls of ground meat that you uh wound up throwing a, at a student as a, as a demonstration <laughs> tell me a little bit about that um well yeah so the, the demo was basically basically we had um yeah we, we ground some pork shoulder fresh um and uh, and one batch was salted and and the other was not um, and and essentially that was the only difference. Um, the salted one we also needed a little bit, um, um, but you know it, it makes such a huge difference in the texture. Um, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize it. I know, like my mom didn't realize it, and I was explaining this at the beginning of the demo that um, you know when I, when I do a lot of recipe testing and when I lived in New York, um, I would give a lot of leftovers to my mom, um, and uh, she's on a low sodium diet, so I would always make things with a little bit less salt, knowing that I was going to give them to her later on, um, but. But one of the exceptions was sausage because you can't really make a sausage with less salt because the texture doesn't come out right. Um, and, and the reason is because, you know, that, that salt dissolves proteins and it helps them cross-link. And, and it's, the salt is really what gives a sausage its kind of springy texture. Um, and so, so, yeah, so if you take 
pork shoulder, grind it plain, and then grind, salt it and grind it, um, and then form patties and fry them, um, the texture is completely different um, to the point where, well, in the demo, we, we, we threw them uh, against a, a sheet tray, and you know, the unsalted one kind of splatters and, and flies apart into a thousand pieces, whereas the salted patty, um, it kind of bounces off in one single piece. And you know, that's sort of what a sausage should be to me. And it's also the same reason why I don't uh, mix salt into my hamburgers because I want a hamburger to, to be sort of loose and tender and juicy and not sort of springy. Um, so, I always, so when I'm making a burger, I only season the outside. But if you're making sausage, you have to season it throughout. So I, I'm kind of a, a food geek. I, I certainly love learning more about food. I have a lot of experience uh, cooking professionally and, and uh, home cooking. So I could, we could talk about these things forever, but I'd like to learn more about you. So uh, tell me a little bit about your background, really your, your evolution from a young adult um, to where you are today. Um, well, you know, my, my upbringing was, uh, you know, the ed- the, my education when I was growing up was very much uh, science and math focused um, with, uh, because, you know, my, my father's a scientist and my grandfather's a scientist and my mother wanted me to be a scientist or, or, or a doctor or something like that. Um, and um, so, yeah, so that, that, was, you know, the, that was the focus of my education um, all the way up through college and, and I ended up going to an engineering school um, and uh, I was going to be a biology major. Um, and then uh, about halfway through about halfway through college, um, I started to realize that um, I didn't really love the sort of day to day lab work involved in biology. Um, I, I just found it a little tedious. Um, so that's when I sort of ba- that's when I sort of started looking for you know other other things to possibly do. Um, and I kind of accidentally fell into cooking then because um, I, I wasn't lo- I, I'd never really cooked before. Um, I wasn't really looking for a job as a cook, um, but I, I happened to walk into a restaurant looking for a job as a waiter actually for, for one summer. Um, and uh, instead, they offered me a job as a cook because the, luckily they had they had a prep cook who didn't show up that morning and so they were shorthanded and they were like oh here's this like dumb kid off the street who will work for very little money and offered me a job for the summer I was like okay I'll do that um and then that that was you know that was sort of my first foray into into cooking and eating and working in kitchens um and since then you know that I, I pretty much instantly knew that that's what I wanted to do you know something food related because I, I just loved the, the 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 everyday work of of, of a kitchen you know I, I even like I love peeling lemons and I love, I love chopping onions, you know, that like I, all those things that you have to do sort of repetitively, but get better and better at each time. Um, I, I love all that kind of work. Um, um, and so let's see, how did I get from there to what I'm doing now? Um, you know, I, I worked in restaurants for a number of years, uh, part-time through the end of college and then full-time afterwards. Um, and for, for me, the, you know, the only thing that was really sort of missing from the restaurant experience was, um, uh, was the science element. You know, I still had a, 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 a sort of natural, uh, naturally inquisitive nature and um, and sort of a, a built in skepticism, which I think you get from having a, a science background um, and and in at least in a in a professional kitchen setting where you 're at where you 're at a restaurant and and your main goal is to pr- produce food consistently and on time like though there 's not really much time for skepticism or inquiry um, and it, and I, and i don 't mean that to say that as a sort of detriment to restaurants it's just it 's just the reality of how they work because you 're under such a ti- under such time pressure all the time um, so 
um, it w- so it wasn't exactly the best environment for kind of asking asking the kind of questions that kept popping up, like why are we cooking this this way? Why like why don't we do th- why don't we do it that way? What happens if we try it this way? Um, and and most of the time you're just told not to ask questions because you don't have the time you don't have the time to explore those things. Um, Chefs also don't like to feel threatened sometimes. Well, that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah especially especially by the uh, the junior guy who's uh, been a prep cook for a couple of weeks. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Um, I, no, I, I I wasn't always loved in kitchens for for having <laughs> having the asking these kinds of questions um um yeah i got told many times that that there there is such thing as dumb questions um but uh but you know so so i I worked in restaurants for many years though and but through this whole time i had these kind of questions that kept coming up and i kind of had you know like a like a notebook full of these questions like why why do i do it this way why do it that way and i and i knew that at some point i wanted to try and answer all those questions um and so that opportunity came um eventually when i um, I took a job as a test cook at uh, Cooks Illustrated magazine, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so I, you know, th- there were a couple of reasons that I left restaurants. Part- partly it was because I wanted to explore this other side of cooking. Um, uh, partly, and it was also partly just uh, you know, I think like a lot of people, you get a little burned out with the hours, um, and and burned out by not ever seeing friends and family. Um, so, um, so the, yeah, the opportunity for this test cook job came along and so I, I took it and, and that was, um, you know, that was a pretty perfect fit for me because I was finally getting to do, um, you know, still, still cooking and still exploring food, but also sort of getting paid to answer these questions that I've all, that I'd always had. Um, and, um, and, and the writing sort of followed from there, you know, at, at, at least at Cooks Illustrated, everybody, all the test cooks are, um, are also the writers of the stories, um, cause they're always done in this sort of first person perspective. Um, which is not to say that every, every writer there is a good story. Like at Cooks Illustrated stories are heavily, heavily edited, um, because people are hired first for their cooking skills and their, um, and their, and their kitchen testing skills, um, and secondarily as writers. Um, and, and that's sort of why all the, all the Cooks Illustrated stories have a very, very similar voice, despite the fact that they're written by many different people it's because they're so heavily edited um uh but that that's basically when i started writing um and um and i and i found out that i really enjoyed the writing part of it too um so i moved you know i moved from a test cook position to an editorial position there um uh editing other stories um and then i started freelance writing on the side um and eventually when i moved back to new york a few years later um I was a I was a freelance writer looking for a job. I was a freelance writer and doing some private chef stuff um, just to make ends meet. Um, and that's that's when I you know met Ed Levine from Serious Eats and and started writing for Serious Eats. Um, and you know and he suggested he said you know you're you're a pretty good writer. You should have a column on Serious Eats. Um, and so I said okay, what should I? Uh, and he was like, what what do you want to write about? And I said, well, I've always wanted to do a food science column. He's like, great. Like well. We'll call it the food lab, and you know you can you you turn in the first one next week, um, and that that's how the first food lab column started. And it was about boiling eggs. So I spent I spent a week um, at the time I was living in an apartment in Brooklyn, a one bedroom apartment in Brooklyn that had uh, uh, literally no windows. It was I mean it was a cave in Brooklyn, um, and I spent a week in that cave, kind of boiling eggs, and then um, and then wrote. 3,000 words about boiling eggs, uh, and that, that, you know, that, that, that was the first Food Lab article, and I think it's, you can still find it online, I think it's 2009, something like that. How many eggs did you boil that week? Oh, I don't know, but it was hundreds, hundreds of eggs. I don't know. Hopefully, I don't know the exact number. Hopefully I, I'm sure I had a market that week, right? Right. Um, so I'm interested in, when you were studying biology, mm-hmm. you said that the lab work was tedious. Yeah. But it, it strikes me as certainly prep work in a kitchen uh peeling onions and peeling lemons and cutting onions like you said you you like right. to do Can be boiling too. boiling hundreds of eggs mm-hmm. in a week seems like it may also be tedious so what's the difference talk <coughs> about that a little bit 
Um, no, you're right. I can see why that would be tedious. I guess the main difference is um, is the um, well, partly because I think the end results are more pleasant in cooking that you get to eat your results. Um, it's also it's also just a faster turnaround. You know, it's like um, when I when I when, you know when you're in a restaurant and it's like you get in there in the morning and you start prepping stuff and then by the time service rolls around, like you're done, right? You've created, you've, you've started from scratch and created these things that, um, that people are really, you know, that, that are bringing people together over a meal that are bringing people pleasure that people are like willing to pay money for because you've put this work into it. And so, so there is this sort of very, um, you know, some of the, some of the tasks can be repetitive and tedious, I guess, but there is a sort of very immediate, um, and pleasant feedback that you get from it. Um, and, and the idea that you, you know, you're knowing, knowing that you're bringing people pleasure, um, I think is, is, is the main reason I think why, why, well, it's why, the main reason why I cook and why I do what I do. And I think it is why for, for a lot of people as well. Um, and, you know, as, and as far as the sort of experimenting and the writing goes, um, it, it also, I think it, it really is just about the end result that, um, you know, working in a, re- working in a restaurant, um, you're probably, you know, you're, you're maybe feeding, you know, a hundred, a couple hundred people a night, somewhere in the hundreds per night. And it's probably like, a very small subset of like a very rich part of the population. So you're, you're bringing pleasure to people, but, um, but I find actually that, um, testing recipes and, and writing, um, is, is in a way more fulfilling because, um, you know, you're not cooking directly for anybody, but you are, I think, helping bring a lot of families together. You're helping a much wider range of people. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and you're answering questions that I think, um, are important to people in that, that, that in, in the end will bring people, um, around the table and bring get, bring families closer together, bring friends closer together, um, and and that's I think really the reason why food I think is important to me. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Consider Bardwell Farm is a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm, making award-winning raw cow and goat's milk cheeses in a not-too-far corner of Vermont. For Consider Bardwell, sustainability means caring for the land, raising their animals well, reducing waste, and helping their community, all in the name of happy animals and people and delicious cheeses. Consider Bardwell Farm is proud to support Heritage Radio Network as part of their food and farming community and a proud sponsor of all good conversations had over great cheese. Find them at your local cheese counter, at New York City Green Markets, and online at considerbardwellfarm.com. Welcome back to Chef's Story. I'm here with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, and we're talking about food science and the food lab. And Kenji, I find the... The science part, I think a lot of people find the science part of cooking um, maybe uh, very interesting, but also not that approachable. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about how your your goal is to make it – I think your goal is to make it more approachable for the home cook. Yeah, well, you know, I think, I think people find not just in cooking, but I think people find science in general to be a little bit uh, hard to approach. Um, and I think, I think partly it's because I think there is a sort of misconception about what science is that sometimes is perpetuated by scientists as well, you know, because there, there is sort of – hardcore science like lab coat science um and um and of course there's huge huge value in that but um but the, you know there 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 are other types of science as well you know there there's the science that you can do every day um and and really you know science is is not it's not about like fancy words and it's not about 
um, you know, test tubes and, and, and things like that. It's, it's really just about, you know, it's, it's a method of sort of examining uh, the world, making observations on the world around you and using those observations to form theories. And it's really just a, a method of understanding what's going on um, and sort of um, categorizing your thoughts uh, so that you can um, get at the root of what's going on as opposed to just um, making assumptions about things. So, you know, even in, in the example I give in the book is that, you know, when you buy a new toaster, um, you don't know, you know, oh, toasters all have different settings. Like, I, I don't know, and when I have a brand new toaster, I don't know what, what five dark is going to, how dark the toaster is going to come out. So maybe I'll set the toaster to five on the first day, I see it comes out too dark. Next day, I'll try setting it to three, it comes out too light. And then finally, on the last day, I'll dial it into four. And, you know, and that is, that is science, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making an observation, I'm making a theory, uh, I'm testing the results, and then I'm coming up with a conclusion. Um, and, and that really is, um, that really is science. Um, and, th- and that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of science that I think you can do every day. Um, and that's the kind of science that can also sort of help you understand um, better what's going on in your kitchen. So, um, you know, for, so for me, science is really more um, about, um, uh, about skepticism and about and about wanting to answer questions um, than it is about um, sort of this sort of lab style science. Um, I, I think there's also sort of a misconception that people have um, that uh, that uh, and there's this false dichotomy that people I think people think the science is sort of the opposite of um, of uh, culture or or art or um, or tradition or whatever you know. Um, and and when people hear about food science, and this happens all the time, when you know people people who um, aren't familiar with my work, if they ask me what I do, I'm like, oh, I write about food science. Um, people will always say, oh, you mean like molecular gastronomy and stuff? And I'm like, no, not really. I mean, and you know, and and. Molecular gastronomy, and I think that is a sort of misconception. People think people think science means technology. Science means new things, um, and and it doesn't necessarily. You know, we can use science to understand new things, but we can also use use science to understand traditional cooking methods. Um, and um, and just because we understand the science of something better doesn't mean that we have to throw those traditions out the window. It doesn't mean that we lose the artistry or the culture or the or the history. Um, and I I think it's actually quite it's quite the opposite. You know, it's it's like. Um, if you say like um like say 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 if you take a, a musician right um j- just just because they uh it, and and maybe maybe they're learning how to play the guitar um and they can play a few chords um and 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 they they have a sort of natural talent for it and 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 they're very good at it I, you know teaching that person a little bit of music theory or teaching them more chords is not going to make them lose their art right it it just gives them a sort of wider palette to work with and it gives them a better understanding of of um what they're doing which which i think helps someone helps make you more expressive because it gives you finer control over over what you're doing um so it, they're they're not really you know art and science are not really at odds with each other i think they i think they more complement each other I agree with that. I think that there are many chefs out there who maybe aren't buying what you're selling, so to speak. They're, they are. They feel that some of what you're doing contradicts the the tried and true fundamental techniques. For example, in your book, you talk about blanching. Right. Um, we mm-hmm. teach, um, as most culinary schools, I would imagine, teach. Um, blanching technique, which you know, boy, uh, yeah, big pot of water, water. Yep. which I think you agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, blanch your vegetables for a, a period of time, usually not a very long period of time, mm-hmm. in the boiling water, and then shock them in ice water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the shocking uh, part is something that you 
challenge. Uh, yeah, well, you know, a few people have actually. I think they they did that in modernist. They challenged that in modernist cuisine also. And and well, and you, and you find um, and and if you actually test it, you find that most of the time you don't actually need to shock. Um, there there are times when you do. Um, uh, but but most of the time, if you take you know blanching your vegetables, taking them out and just spreading them on a sheet tray in like a single layer, or or running them under cool water, um, that's enough to halt the cooking process. Um, and 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 they'll come out. Uh, indistinguishable from vegetables that you do shock. Um, you know, the, the exception would be you, what you don't want to do is say like, you know, blanch, blanch um, a couple quarts of peas and then pile them into a bowl because then the heat from the ones on the outside can continue to cook the ones that are in the center of that bowl. So that, that you don't want to do that. But as long as your vegetables are in, you know, in a single layer, the, the shocking doesn't really, um, doesn't really make much of a difference. And, and you also have to, I think you also have to realize that a lot of this stuff is contextual. Um, and, um, and, and so, and, and so this, you know, this book is pretty squarely aimed at home cooks. Um, and so there's, there's, I think there are a lot of techniques that sort of make sense in restaurant settings, uh, that chefs tell home cooks to do because they make sense in restaurant settings, but they don't make sense at home. Um, so like, for example, um, blanching peas, nobody at home, nobody at home is going to be blanching four pounds of four or five pounds of peas at a time, which you, which you might do in a restaurant. And in that case, you might want to shock them in ice water because, you know, maybe you want to get them into the walk-in faster or maybe you don't have enough, you don't want to tie up a bunch of large sheet trays to spread them out. Whereas at home, if you're blanching a cup of peas, it's not going to make any difference at all how you, how you take, what you do after you take them out of that, out, out of that water. So how do you feel about the, I don't know if it's the old guard, the old school chefs who mm-hmm. um, seem to, to be just not really as interested in, in change and, and embracing <laughs> the, the culinary technology that's that, that you're, uh, you and others are, are really, um, you know, I think your analogy with the musician is, is a really good one. You're adding to, you're enhancing and enriching uh, the technique and experience of, of new up-and-coming chefs. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about the, the old guard who's, who's against that? Um, well, I mean, I, I think sort of being against science from an ideological standpoint is just, I, I think it's just a weird way to, to live in the world. But, but, it, but it's also understandable. You know, it's like, it, and, and I tell people this all the time, it's like, you, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the test as fairly as possible and, and try and, you know, get as close as I can to the truth. Because, you know, science, you're never really getting the absolute truth. You, you can never say with absolute certainty that something is true. It's always sort of this quest to get closer and closer to the truth. Um, um, and, and so that, that's what I tell people. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if you've been cooking your, your macaroni and cheese the same way your whole life and you love the way that turns out, then there's like, there's no reason you should change it now just because something new came up, you know, may, maybe you might find that there are ways that maybe you can get to the same end result using, um, you and, and get there a little bit faster, maybe using one less pot or something like that. Um, um, and, and in, in those cases, if, if efficiency is something that matters to you, maybe you should change it. But, but if you love the way something is coming out and you've done it that way many times and you know that it, it's worked every time you've done it, um, then there's not really reason to change. Um, and, and, and I, you know, it, it's the same sort of thing that I get, like, cause in, in the book and on the column, on, um, online, I'll often say like, oh, like I'll call something the best version or the ultimate or whatever. Um, and, and people are like, well, what do you mean best version? Like, and, and. And for me, you know, when, when I use those words, I don't really mean that it's the best version because obviously there's no such thing as a best macaroni and cheese. It's all it's, it's all about what you like and what you want. Um, so, you know, when I use a word like best or ultimate, it means it, it's really just more of an indicator that like um, this this is one of the recipes where you're probably going to have to do a lot more steps than than the way your grandmother did it. Um, but, um, you know, it, it'll maybe take it'll maybe take uh 50% more work only to make it 5% better. But, you know, but, but this is a recipe where I'm trying, I'm trying my hardest to make sure that, you know, 
flavor is the only thing that matters and not like efficiency or something else like that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there is no such thing as best. It's all, it's all just a matter of personal taste and what, what you want and what you like. Um, but, you know, understanding the science is, is what's going to help you um, fine-tune a dish. So, it's, you know, if, if you don't understand the science and you're just following a recipe, um, so I, I like to liken it to a, um, if you're following um, uh, like a map on your phone, um, where, you know, if, 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 if you're just taking turn-by-turn directions, um, you can get from point A to point B pretty easily. Um, but then what happens if, say, there's, like, construction on a street one day and you can no longer walk down that street? Um, at that point, you have to sort of zoom out on the map and figure out what's going on and find your own way to the end route. And, and obstructions like that happen in the kitchen all the time. You know, you're not, you're not cooking on the same equipment that the person who tested the recipe is cooking on. Or, or maybe one day, um, you know, your power goes out and you can't use the microwave, so you have to figure out a different way to melt your butter or whatever it is. Um, um, so, uh, you know, understanding the science and technique um, helps you deal with situations as they arise. And it also it also helps you, um, you know, make recipes into your own because you can choose your own route or you can choose your own destination um, a lot more easily than if you're just sort of following these step by step turns that are built into a recipe. And technology, just for the sake of technology, never is really that helpful, right? <laughs> technology, for the sake of technology, I don't, I don't think it's helpful. I mean, I think it can be fun and interesting. Like, you, you know, like, I mean, you remember, I'm sure, from like the, the early 2000s when sous vide machines were starting to show up in restaurants um, and everybody was advertising the fact that their pork, pork chop was cooked sous vide or their, or their eggs were cooked sous vide. Um, and, um, and, and you find that, yeah, the, at that point, it was because it was a new toy and everybody had the new toy and wanted to play with it. Um, um, but, but yeah, but these days I think people now have realized, okay, like it's just a tool. It does, it does some things good. Like I'm not going to try and use my hammer as a saw anymore. You know, like it, it does some things good. It does some, doesn't do other things good. Um, uh, let, let's focus on what it does right. Um, so at this point people still use sous vide machines to cook, but they don't advertise the fact. And I think they use it in more intelligent ways. Um, so yeah, technology, I mean, technology for the sake of technology, I don't think is, is, is good, but, but new technology, I mean, can be great if you, if you apply it right. I agree with that. Um, a student asked you yesterday about the sous vide machine, and you you made a, a really good example with a, a nail gun. I think. You yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Because I so I'm I'm doing some remodeling on my on my home, and I you know I'm I'm doing like all the carpentry myself. So I've been buying myself a lot of new tools, and um, so yeah, there was like I, I bought myself a nail gun, like a that you know that you attach to an air compressor um, a few months ago. Um, and when I first got that nail gun, it was like the coolest. Thing. I just wanted to nail everything. Like I wanted to nail everything because it was just so fun to play with. Um, and then, yeah, and then eventually you realize, okay, like my nail gun is good for nailing things. I probably shouldn't just be nailing everything though because, um, yeah, because it's good for some things and, and, and not good for others. Yep. New toys are fun to play they with. They are, right? yeah. <laughs> um, so walk me through your process. You're, you're in the lab a lot. You're, you're testing and, and retesting. And uh, I got to imagine... You know, take Thanksgiving turkey, for example, mm-hmm. which is often, you know, has been tested a, a million times right. over. So that may not be the best example, but how many turkeys do you cook in that example? So walk me through, walk me through your process and pick um, any example you like. Well, I mean, so, okay, so, yeah, we can talk about turkey. So, um, yeah, so my, my basic recipe development process, like, it always starts with a lot of research, um, and that, that's both sort of technical and, reci- and technique and recipe research, um, and also sort of cultural and historic research. So... Um, you know, cause, cause like I said, like what, what, what I, what I don't want to do in my book is, is present recipes that will end up with end results that aren't really recognizable or that don't, you know, I always want the recipe, the end result to speak to people, um, in the way they expect it, you know? So if I, if I'm developing a, a recipe for meatloaf, I want to make sure that the meatloaf I end up with is something that hits all the, hits all the right meatloaf notes. You know, it's comforting in the right way. It looks right. It, it has the right sort of interplay of textures and flavors. Um, and so, so, you know, so. 
research always uh, it starts by by doing this historic and regional research and finding out what a dish means to people. So if I'm doing turkey, I might try and see like, all right, like how do people traditionally in New England, where you know the first Thanksgiving was, how do people in New England cook it? Right? How how do people cook it in the South? How do people cook it in the Midwest? How do they cook it in California? Um, and, and there you can sort of then sort of synthesize like, all right, so. I need my turkey to, you know, I need my turkey. Well, sometimes you'll find that things are extraordinarily regional, right? Um, like, um, like chili, right? Chili in Texas is very different from what people think chili is up here. Sure. Um, and in those cases, you don't try and make everyone happy because you're not going. If you put beans in your chili recipe and call it Texas chili, people in Texas get pissed off at you. Um, so you, they, so sometimes you have to pick your battles and say, okay, I'm going to make like. Uh, Texas-style chili today, or I'm going to make uh, Cincinnati chili today, right? And so you have to really find out, you have to really sort of decide what what it is you're after. Um, and that's sort of the first step of the process. It's like, I'll, I'll come up with a list of like what my turkey needs to be. It needs to be juicy. It needs to have uh, crispy golden skin. Um, you know, I, I guess those are really the only big major things in turkey. I guess maybe it has to have like a deep turkey flavor. Um, uh, and then after, and then after that, um, I'll start looking at techniques, um, and I'll see, um, and I'll sort of get a survey of all the different recipes out there and see what people have tested and tried in the past. Um, and uh, and then and then the next step would sort of be to identify uh, areas where I think there might be interesting scientific questions, or perhaps you know questions that people haven't answered very thoroughly, or where there might be problems. Um, and those problems could be anything from, you know, this is, it, it's, it takes a very long time to use this method. Like, is there a faster way we can do it? Or it could be that, um, so for instance, I, I wrote an article about Turkey a few years ago that focused on brining. And to me, the problem with brining is that, um, you know, it solves one problem very well. It makes, it ensures that your turkey stays moist. Um, but to me, it introduces another problem, which is that it makes your turkey taste watered down because um, the moisture that you're adding to it is straight up water. So, um, so the focus of that article was like, okay, well, you know, clearly out, we have this clearly, pretty clearly laid out problem. Um, now, what's the science behind it and how do we solve it? Um, and so then all the testing, all the testing phase is really about um, trying to answer those questions and trying to solve them. Um, and, and sometimes, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Um, so, they're, they're, you know, things aren't always, things don't always go the way you plan them to. Um, Which is something I'd like to talk about. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Sure. All right. Welcome back. So, Kenji, right before the break, you talked a little bit about uh, – started to talk about when things don't work out. Tell me a little bit more about um, when things work out. Do you ever just give up on testing something, and, and how do you treat f- uh, what I would call failure in the kitchen? Right. Well – I mean, I, I don't really ever give up on testing things. Sometimes I put things aside. Um, like, for instance, I've been, I've been trying to work out a recipe for homemade ramen noodles that, um, uh, that I've never been really happy with. You know, for me, like homemade ramen noodles, I've, I've never really made ramen noodles that I think are better than sort of the good fresh store-bought brands I can get that, you know, like Sun Noodle, I think makes really great fresh ramen noodles that you can just buy at the supermarket. Um, and so I, I've never been able to make a, a noodle that's better than that. So I've, 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 I've sort of been putting that one aside, pushing that one off, and people keep asking me, when are you going to have a ramen noodle recipe? Um, I don't have one yet, but I'm, I'm still working on it. Um, you know, but, but I guess, yeah, that, I mean, that question of failure in the kitchen, I think, I think a lot of people are scared about failing in the kitchen. Um, and, are, are, you know, and, and people do get nervous when they're, when they're cooking for friends or when they're cooking for family um, that they're going to mess a recipe up or that something's not going to come out the right way. Um, and, and, you know, and, and for me, I think, that, I think it's the wrong way to think about it because, you, you know, you have to keep in mind what, what the point of food is, right? And, and for me, 
um, right, there's obviously to fill that hole in your belly, but um, but I think the real point of, of food and why why we put effort and care into making trying to make food taste good is that we want people to come together over a meal. You know, we want we want to bring our friends and we want our family and we want everyone to sit around a table um, and have a good time as friends and family. Um, and and that's really what the I think what the role of the food is. So. You know, so if you're having a dinner party and you know, and you've got like your six friends over, um, or you got your family over for the holidays, then I think the food has basically already served its purpose. You know, it's it's already gotten the people there, so um, you know, it's done most of its job. And at, at that point, you know, if you mess up, if you if your mayonnaise breaks or if you slightly overcook your turkey, I don't think it really matters. You know, just just own up to it. Say, oops, I overcooked the turkey, um, and you can still have a great night. And and it does. It, I don't think it ruins anything. And you know, and and to be honest, and, and, and think about it going the other way around. Like if you go over to a friend's house, like. When was the last time you, you had a friend who cooked a perfect meal for you? Probably, probably never, right? There's always going to be something wrong. But you're not going to – you don't really care, right? You're not going to call them out on it. You're not going to say, oh, that meal is terrible. Um, you're just going to remember having a good time at a friend's house. And, and, and frankly, if you have the kinds of friends who are going to come over to your house and complain that your turkey is overcooked, then you probably don't want them coming over to your house anymore anyway. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think I – think, it's totally fine to, to fail in the kitchen, um, especially as a home cook. You know, it's, it's a little bit different if, in, if you're in a restaurant and people are paying money and they have a certain expectation. Um, but as, as a home cook, like, it's, it's totally fine to try new things and, and, not, and, and to not be afraid to try these new things. Because if you mess them up a little bit, then who really cares, right? It's, it's, at the end of the day, it's just, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, it's, it's just pizza. Like, it's, it's, pizza's great, but it's still just pizza. It's not like we're, we're, not, we're not curing cancer. We're not sending people to the moon. We're just making pizza here, right? Um, Agreed. And in a restaurant kitchen, you can refire it. Right. A little yes. bit more difficult yes. to do at a dinner party, <laughs> right? Um, so a burning question I have for you or for anybody who is, is actively testing lots of recipes in mm-hmm. a, a lab situation, who eats all the food. Who are your tasters? Um, and can I be one? <laughs> well, when I lived in New York, um, it was my mom and my grandfather and and my doorman. My doorman always took tons of leftovers home to their families. Um, uh, these days, I live out in I live out in uh, San Mateo in California, and um, and I happen to be of an age where all of my friends are having babies. So there are a lot of people who uh, happily take. Uh, happily take food because they don't have the time to cook anymore. So, I, so my neighbors and friends get get most of my food now. Also, also my dogs and my wife, obviously, as well. That's good. Uh, very, very good community. Do- dogs eat well. Your dogs are fantastic. I love the the photos of, of your dogs in in their book. And my my youngest daughter, uh, Juliet, who's seven. Mm-hmm. Loves your, I think it's a pug. Uh, oh, uh, Sharpe. Yeah, Sharpe. Yeah. And she she can't get enough of those photos. Um, <laughs> so tell me about the dogs. Are, are your dogs, um, you know, all, always around and uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, looking for scraps and having fun with the with you know, your testing. So I, right now I have two dogs and they have sort of opposite personalities. Um, Hamon is the is the Sharpe pug. Well, he, yeah, he's actually half pug, a Sharpe pug, and he. Uh, is a very picky eater. Like ever since ever since he was a, a a puppy, he's been a picky eater, and it's hard. It's hard to actually sometimes hard to get him to eat. And you know, um, I, I usually cook for my dogs. Um, so I'll, I'll make like this. I, I make like a stew in the pressure cooker. So basically, like a bunch of ground meat, some vegetables, squash, eggs, and usually some kind of grains. And I just cook it all in the pressure cooker. And I make it in big batches and then freeze it. Um, every few weeks, um, so I'll usually cook for my dogs. But then sometimes I'll I'll run out and I just don't have time to make more, and I'll feed him like dry kibble and he'll just go over to the bowl and like stare at it and like look up at me and then just walk turn around and walk away and he won't eat it until he's really desperate for food um the other dog is the opposite the other dog shabu is a little mutt and she uh she is super food obsessed like and will and will eat anything she like she'll hang 
The, I mean, the dogs are pretty well trained, so they know not to come into the kitchen. Um, but she'll hang around just outside and wait for me to spill something or whatever, and then run over and grab it, and then and, you know, and 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 take it and hide and, and eat it on her own. Um, yeah, the, but the do- the dogs are good. They're 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 a good uh, a good a good pair with opposite personalities. Well, my dog is at least sixteen years old, and so wow. her her hearing has gone. So it's it's a good thing because if she heard this radio show, I think she'd be expecting a little <laughs> bit uh, better dining. Um, Tell me about who inspires you, um, or what inspires you. You know, I, I guess my, uh, I th- I, the the I think the biggest in- inspiration for the the book and the column I do now um, is not a chef or a food writer. Um, I would say it was uh, so I was a big fan of Mr. Wizard as a kid, which is a sure. you know the kids' science show, um, and I think you know just the, just the way he was able to explain sort of rather complicated scientific principles in a very simple way using you know using analogies and using diagrams um and and explaining it in a way that people could really grasp it um i think was really great and you know and 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 was an essential part of my education growing up i think you know the the concepts that i learned watching mr wizard when i was like 8 years old I, those basically carried me through you know, physics and, and chemistry and biology classes all the way through college. I mean, obviously, there, things get more complex um, as you start to add the math and the, and the real um, nitty-gritty stuff behind it. But, um, but conceptually, um, you know, his method of explaining was, I think, just wonderful. Um, and so, so that's sort of the kind of stuff that I try to bring into my book, um, um, you know, trying to explain sort of complicated things using words that are not not just words that people understand, but words that um, are are fun and that that you know, I, I like I, I guess I think of it as sort of um, like folding the the broccoli into the macaroni and cheese, you know, where um, I, I want it I want the book to first be fun to read, um, and then if you learn something in the process, then that that's great too. Um, uh, but you know, the real I think the real hook is to get get people to start reading it um, uh, and and enjoying themselves while they're reading it, so that they'll so that the you know I I think when you're having fun, lessons really stick a lot more. Um, than if you're just being taught, you know, like I, I hated going to lecture because you're just sitting there and someone is telling you things and you're, and, and I don't really absorb information that way. I absorb, I absorb th- things by doing them or, or by, you know, or when I'm really enjoying myself, I'm, I'm much more attentive. Um, so I think making, making it fun and understandable is, is really the first step. And that, that's what Mr. Wizard brought to science for me. Um, um, I guess, you know, someone like, like Jacques Pepin is also a, a huge influence. Um, cause I think, I think he had a sort of similar approach as well. You know, he, he, he's one of those guys that could just make everything look easy. Um, um, but he also had like an extremely approachable teaching manner and, and, and is just like such a watchable, um, interesting guy. You know, you, you, you look for, I think even people who aren't into cooking enjoy watching Jack Pepin's shows just because he's just such a easy guy to get along with and, and an easy guy to watch. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, well, I think your book is, is really, uh, going to make it fun for a lot of people. I think Thanks. cooking, um, is less of a task for a lot of people now than, uh, and more of a hobby than it ever has been, which I'm, I'm really happy about. Um, but I think your, your book kind of combines that, um, you know, the way things work with co- mm-hmm. a cookbook. And I think that that's a really, uh, phenomenal thing for a lot of people who are, are really starting to learn. And for people like me who know what they're doing to look at it a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I certainly highly recommend the book to everybody. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your next project. 
Uh, well, the next project is a is a follow up book. Um, so um, th- this book, um, the the version that came out is a, a single volume. It's like nine hundred and something pages. Um, but originally, we were going to uh, release a, a, a two volume box set, um, uh, and each one was going to be around eight hundred pages. So I, it, the what the material I wrote and worked on for it is actually a lot more than what ended up getting published. Um, in in the end, we we've decided that uh, a two-volume box that was a little bit too pricey, um, especially sort of for a first-time book. Um, and so we cut it down to this one volume. But I, but there's still a few, you know, several hundred pages of stuff that I had that was going to go into this book. So that's forming the, sort of the basis of the next book. Um, uh, and, and now I'm in the process of, of adding a lot more things to it. To, um, so I, th- I think it'll end up probably being... I, I mean, I'm saying it's going to be a little bit shorter, but you know, originally this book was supposed to be 300 pages, and it just kind of grew, so it'll probably end up growing to something similar in size. Um, and uh, my deadline is July. Uh, this book, my, I missed my deadline by three years. I think I'll get closer than three years on the on the next one, but hopefully it'll be out in stores uh, 2007, uh, fall of 2017. Good. We look forward to it. Well, thank you, Kenji, for the conversation today. Um, thanks to the Chef Story team. Uh, Dorothy will be back with another interview next week. Uh, and I thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>